So before we start this episode, I just wanted to let you know about the retreat I'm going to teach very shortly, well in October, at Purple Valley Yoga in Goa, alongside my very special guest, Edwin Bryant. So it's a two weeks retreat, both weeks there'll be a Mysore class in the morning, every morning, and the first week I'll be there teaching asana workshops in the afternoons, the second week Edwin will take the reins for his knowledge and philosophy, including going through his well-known book on the yoga sutras in person. Further than that, Purple Valley Yoga Goa is generally great. A lovely shala, great food, wonderful staff, and set on a beautiful grounds with a pool. So I'm sure you're going to have a great time. See www.keyonyoga for uh, details or go to yogagoa.com as well. I hope to see you there. So welcome to the Keenan Yoga podcast, um, Zoe Slatoff. Um, she is current professor at how do you say that? <laughs> like, Loyola Marymount University. I was going to say Loyola Maryland University. So she's a professor of Sanskrit, Loyola Maryland University. And she's also um, been teaching Ashtanga actually since she t- just told me since she was 18. Um, so she was teaching 12 years in New York and practicing over 25 years. So as always, the obvious place to dive in, um, Zoe, um, is uh, is... How, how did you start? So it's wonderful, sorry, to have you on the podcast. Thanks for coming on. And how did you start yoga? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for having me. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. I started yeah, nice yoga when I was 15 um, from a videotape that somebody gave my mom. Um, not that I, people still know what videotapes are. I'm a Rodney Yee on the beach. Um, and I did it every morning at 5 a.m. And I sort of somehow knew that it was a thing to do every day and early. And hmm. I liked that. Hmm. Um, and, you know, then I went off and was a normal teenager um, or abnormal teenager, whatever. But um, when I was 17, I moved to the East Village and started taking classes. Um, and I took some sort of Ashtanga-ish classes and liked them. And then I um, had a, another video of um, Richard Freeman doing primary series. And I did that at home and, you know, got stuck on my side and Garbhapandasana for 10 minutes, I think, the first time I tried it. Um, and then one day a friend of mine, um, an old a teacher, one of my first teachers, actually, um, took me to a Mysore class. And um, I just, I walked in and I have very good memory. And so I just went in and did primary series as if that was what I did. Um, And I just loved it. I didn't know you could do it in a room full of people rather than by yourself. And um, I loved the quiet. And I just, I then started doing that. Um, and I was teaching vinyasa at the time. I sort of, I never meant to teach yoga, but, um, there weren't a lot of yoga teachers back then. So people just kept asking me to sub for them. I did a little, a teacher training, a vinyasa teacher training at Om Yoga when I was 18. Um, and then people just kept asking me to teach. And then my practice, as my practice became more and more ashtanga, I started teaching more and more. Um, I was studying engineering at the time at Cooper Union in the East Village. And somehow, I don't know, at one point I was teaching 16 classes a week and I never intended to teach at all. So (laughs) I was very busy, Um, but I had a lot of energy back then. Um, And when I was 20, uh, Patabi Joyce came to New York and taught a month 
um, for a month at the Puck Building, which was right around the corner from me. And I went and did a month of lead intermediate and that definitely <laughs> blew my mind and felt yeah, kind of like being plugged into an electric socket um, in a good way. And at the end of the month, he um, said to me, come to Mysore. And so I thought, okay. And I quit school and went to Mysore and was there for four or five months, I think. The first time this was the end of 2000, um, I guess, yeah, end of 2000. And um, turned 21 there. And um into mm-hmm. 2001 um and yeah i just i fell in love with it and fell in love with being in mysore and um it's also when i first heard sanskrit and fell in love with that too um and i then yeah went went back to new york and taught where i'm from um and did some teaching for a while and then I would sort of let everything go and go back to Mysore and you know then I'd go back and I'd teach for a while and then I'd let it all go and go back for you know mm. four or five six months which you know I think about that now wow <laughs> it's such a miraculous thing to be able to just let life go in that way and um so you were running a Meister of, program and then just kind of letting someone teach that and then going back and forth? Kind of. At the beginning, it, was, it wasn't it was quite that I was running a Meister program. I was sort of teaching at other mm. places. Um, mm. And, yeah, I didn't, I didn't actually open my own place until 2009 um, after Guruji died. I came back and sort of felt like that was what I was supposed to do. So I then had a shala in New York mm. for 12 and a half years. But at that point, I'd been teaching for um, over over 10 years. And is it right to say your main teacher was Patabi Joyce and uh, I suppose Sharat yes. in Mysore? Or did yes. you learn from Eddie or Guy in New York? But- um, I definitely did. Um, but I, my first Mysore class was with Guy and I practiced with Eddie a fair mm. bit also. Um, but I definitely, I think of Patabi Joyce as my teacher, um, and, and Sharat also. Um, but yeah, I kind of just kept, kept, once I went to Mysore, I just kind of kept, kept going back and I did a lot of practicing in my living room or bedroom or wherever I was at the time also. Well, I suppose getting that out of the way, let's, uh, let's talk about the, uh, your, well, not your break with practice, but your your development in the in the academic fit sphere and how and how and why you started doing that. Like, what was the what was the reason behind that? Um, and the extensive uh, idea behind the podcast today. How do you um, how do you relate practice and what you do? I'm assuming you still practice yoga as well, um, physical aspect of it, um, and to uh, to what you do academically. How do the two relate, and do they relate, and and are there any obstacles between between the two, and how do they complement each other as well? Um, lots of great questions. Um, I guess for mm, me, I've always right. been simultaneous, and so you know, my first trip to Mysore, I did start studying Sanskrit. My roommate um, had somebody who would come to our house, and I heard the sounds mm. from the other room, and I was like, "Oh, what is that?" And so I started studying, and. Um, 
Vinayaka, uh, his name, and he would play the harmonium and, you know, taught us the alphabet. And I was just, I was so intrigued. And Patabi Joyce used, he used to have a little conference every afternoon and he would quote texts. And I just, I wanted to know what he was saying. And so it sort of became part of my, part of my practice to understand this. And it sort of, it felt integral to mm. me from the beginning. And so I studied every day. Then I went home and I got a book and, you know, I studied every day for an hour for about six months. And then I felt like I needed a teacher. And so I quit and I, I sort of, I kept starting and stopping for many years. Um, and then I went back to school at Columbia and I mm. finished my undergraduate degree and then rolled into um, a PhD program. Um, but I started, um, I thought I was going to study neuroscience. I I really thought I was going a more science direction, but I took a Sanskrit class with um, Gary Tubb and I didn't quite know where I was because I'd done some Sanskrit before. And so I took the beginning and intermediate levels at the same time. And so Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I would just have three hours of Sanskrit class. And then, you know, lots of mm. homework. And I just thought it was the most fun thing in the world. Um, so I decided to change my focus and never mind neuroscience and all of that and just, you know, give me more Sanskrit. And so I finished my undergrad. I started this PhD program there. And I I was simultaneously practicing and teaching in New York at various places. Um, I was at Yoga Sutra in Midtown for a while. Um, and at that time when I was at Columbia, I remember going back, back and forth from Midtown to Uptown, which was kind of, <laughs> and I lived in the East Village at the beginning. So a lot of, a lot of subwaying um, at that time. And it's a perfect time to start reading a Sanskrit, isn't it? All that yes. travel, whip out the book. <laughs> exactly. Start trying to pronounce the words right. Um, well, I mean, you know, just a very basic question that comes to mind as you're speaking about this. And many people are interested in these days, these days, especially as we were talking about before we started. I think it's a more recent thing that um, people are having interest in Sanskrit. And I don't think the original, I mean, we, you know, don't hold me on this, but I'm not sure the original <laughs> students in the 70s particularly had a Sanskrit bent. Most of them, I would say. Um, and now it's, it's very commonplace uh, for people to get into Sanskrit and studying the text more, which is, you know, I'd say in development. Um, how would you say a reasonable way in for people that just look at the Sanskrit and just think that's really, really hard? I don't know how. I mean, you mentioned starting and stopping and getting a teacher and getting a book. You know, very basically, I mean, you got any advice for people that, you know, are inspired by your journey? Because it is an inspiring one, you know, like you basically, you know, just hopped on the bus and just kind of carried on and changed, you know, until you've got to a professorship, which is incredible, really. You know, I mean, yeah. I mean, from, I will say. Having an interest in Mysore. Yeah, I mean, I will say in a minute, you know, definitely I have had a lot of, yeah, a lot of getting on and off that uh, <laughs> that train. Mm. But, um, but so I, I was at Columbia for a while. I ended up stopping after the master's. Um, I will answer your question mm. in a minute. And then I started my shala and I wrote a Sanskrit textbook. Yeah. Um, and I wrote it specifically for yoga students because I wanted to open up that world. And so I mm. do teach online classes from it. Um, so that would be my recommended starting point. Um, and <laughs> <laughs> you asked me through the Oxford Center for Hindu Studies. 
Um, right, right. And I wrote the book, yeah, for that reason, to try to make it more accessible and available and fun so that you get to read texts as soon as possible. Um, mm. But I mean, I know, you know, and not everybody wants to do all of that, but even sort of just dipping your toes in the water. I'm actually, I've just started working on this project, which I don't really want to talk too much about because it's not quite official yet, but it's sort of like a book of, a book of Sanskrit words and little stories about them. And so that okay. I'm Sounds hoping good. will yeah. be kind of a nice introduction for people who don't actually want to learn it, but get a little taste of it. Um, but I, I think, you know, I think often part of why people sort of have been, you know, maybe haven't gone in that direction is that, you know, it's made to seem scary or overwhelming or intimidating mm. or, you know, like something, no, you can't do this unless you devote your life to it. Um, but the people in my online classes are, you know, from all over the world. So they're all pre-recorded, so you can watch them on your own time. And, you know, it's really meant for anybody who wants to do it. And that's not to say that you don't have to work for it. You have to work hard for it. You have, you know, you can't learn Sanskrit without doing homework and without putting some time in. But I do, you know, I, I think it's a lot of fun. I've had lots and lots of students come through those classes and it just, it's really a joy. And it, it is, yeah, it, it is why I wrote, why I wrote my book. And I guess I sort of see myself as a bridge. I try to, you know, keep keep a foot in both worlds. So even though I don't have my shawl yeah, anymore, you, I'm You seem very accessible. Um, and what, what are the benefits then of we continue selling to people to come to your online course, which <laughs> I, I think I might come to, but it sounds great. Um, <laughs> awesome. What are the benefits of learning? What are the benefits? I mean, you know, like, why can't we just read the text in English? Why do we need to learn Sanskrit? What's, There's a lot what's the you miss reading Ask in translation. Okay. I mean, even if you, you know, hmm. pick a verse or a sutra in a text and you look at a bunch of different translations, hmm. you'll see how different they are. Hmm. And every word hmm. has so many possible meanings. And so if you ju just look at a translation, every translation and every translator has their bias. And so you're reading hmm. it through their lens. Um, so there's something very different you that happens when, um, let's see. Um, for example, you know, Yoga Sutra 1.2 that everybody knows, right? Yoga Sutra. Yeah, I was going to say that. What are you going to say about <laughs> that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, for example, you know, all of those words can be translated differently. So Niroda, right? It mm. can be... I like mm. to think of it as the stilling. And so I like to think of it as you're sort of turning the volume down on the vrittis, which are the turning mm. repetitive mm. thoughts. Another uh, thing, yeah. if you look at the Sanskrit, you get this word vritti. It comes from the verb vrit, which means to turn. And it is these mm. sort of turning thoughts. And so I like to think of it as like you turn the volume down on those and you turn the volume up on the sort of the true thought, which is you know, ultimately the separation of Purusha from Prakriti and Kaivalya. Um, mm. Sort of developing discernment in, you know, first through the buddhi um, and then eventually even beyond that. 
Um, but, you know, Niroda can also be translated as cessation. And I mean, there are definitely mm. arguments in both directions, but it just, yeah, you sort of, and the chitta even, you know, sometimes it's translated as mind, mm. sometimes it's translated as consciousness. Um, there's a mm. lot you're missing, even in that little, mm. that little sutra and the traditional commentators mm. write pages and pages about it. Um, so again, it sort of opens up a world and even just sort of being able to look at the dictionary and see that there are, I think, 70 something definitions of yoga, even, you know, and all of these different possibilities. I think one thing is just sort of kind of turning information over, isn't it? So if you have more capacity to to kind of turn over different possibilities in your mind, it does a different thing to kind of like reading. Okay, oh, yoga is about stilling the mind. Okay, number three. Okay, oh, I've read exactly. the whole book now. <laughs> you know, rather than thinking, okay, you know, like you read it in Sanskrit. Oh, chitta, chitta. What does that mean? So you know, it has a different kind of emotive effect. Or have you know, I mean, you know, and rather than learning information, that- you start to have a uh, understanding might go deeper. Yeah. And I would say, you know, for me, Sanskrit is a practice, you know, and it makes you slow down. Mm. I am never more concentrated than when I'm translating. You know, even I've been, and yes, you asked me before, I do still practice every day. And I practice, you know, I wake up at five and practice at seven instead of waking up at 3.30 and practicing at 5.30. So that's very nice. It's a relief. Luxury here. Glad you, (laughs) yes, (laughs) let yourself off the hook a little bit there. Um, But, you know, I studying, my mind is much calmer and clearer and more focused and meditative when I'm translating. Um, And, you know, I feel like I can sort of keep that. And I've heard that a lot from students, too. So it's not just the knowledge that it gives you, but it's actually also it can be a practice. Mm. So do you think there are any, uh, like, anything that's been detrimental? Like, uh, people often don't say to mention this, like, is there anything that's been kind of detrimental in, in the in the study aspect, in the academic aspect, to the practice aspect? Or, you know, <laughs> one would think that they just dovetail together and, and you know, and, and complement each other. But have you found any, anything that's been difficult in, in oh, turning up the volume on the academic side? Right. I mean, absolutely. When I was at Columbia in the PhD program before, I I left after the master's because I felt like it was sort of kind of killing the things, the the thing that I loved. And I, you know, Mm. I felt like, I don't know, I felt like I was being asked to, I mean, on the one hand, to sort of separate my practice from my study so much that I kind of lost my practice. And I think, you know, of course, one wants to be objective, but I actually, you know, I then went back um, and did finish the PhD at Lancaster um, in the UK, actually. Um, oh, you went to Lancaster, and, did you? Oh, mm-hmm. that's funny. And yeah, I like that university. Was, <laughs> I spent a lot of time up there. A bit cold. Yeah, it's a bit rainy and cold, <laughs> but uh, <Yeah>. um, <laughs> but I, it was campus. a distance program, so I only yeah. went a few times a year, and I right, tried to go okay. a good you didn't times. go much. Right, okay. <laughs> Yeah, pick the summer. Well, you know, summer. University commas. Um, right. But um I'm gonna say I definitely yeah, the first time around I just I felt like I couldn't I wasn't able to sort of hold you know, stay in both spaces. Whereas when I went back to mm. it I felt like, you know, yes, I wanna be objective, but I wanna do that by acknowledging my biases and sort of you know, rather than pretending that they're not 
there. And I actually, for me, that makes me stronger as a scholar, I think. And because we all sort of have those things, it's just, you know, a lot of, it's easy to kind of pretend they're not there. And I think, yeah, I think for me, I'm, I have to sort of embody both at the, at the same time. Um, you know, the, the mm. proportions mm. change, I guess, depending on what I'm doing. Mm. Mm. I always find it strange when I mean, I talk to a lot of scholars and, and they often remain simply scholars and they're not, you know, I mean, there's notable exceptions. I think Edwin Bryant, a practitioner, a scholar, and, you know, there are others around, but many people are just scholars. And it's kind of funny that, you know, to get into it and then never to actually try it out. <laughs> so, you know, you're going to look at it for many years, you know, like, uh, um, and and then just never dive into thinking what what you know how would it actually feel if I if I went further? And um, to that end, I mean, do you think it's possible to just simply practice contemplative practices and not involve yourself in the practice of yoga? If we look at the uh, Bhagavad Gita, which is constantly circling around this this issue, can someone just do samkhya, or uh, or which is better, samkhya or yoga, or, or is it ever possible to just separate and just practice, just or just do uh, the the kind of philosophical kind of study, or, or are there always the two together, or should they should they be together? You know, any comments about that? Because you see many people in Mysore, and, and uh, you know, for as much as people, you know, many people get into the to the yoga uh, philosophy, many people, you know, still cling on to the idea that it's just you know, as Patabi Joyce sometimes used to say, just practice, you know, like, and then you know something will happen, you know, something will change without even thinking about anything else. You know, the body, the energy of the body in the asana will convert you will cleanse the doors of perception and naturally make you uh, see more clearly um you know I mean, then, what do you think about all this i mean it's always funny to me that that you know that he said that because he was definitely a scholar um so mm. i think that was sort of you know just a doorway and you know i think he was always happy when people were interested in in the philosophy and in the theory um, I think, you know, sometimes people get too caught up in it. And so, yeah, I think the idea was that they, you need the abhyasa and you need the vairagya, right, to practice in the detachment. And But it is interesting, I mean, this idea, I'm, I'm sort of been getting into Sankhya lately because I had to teach it in the spring. And so that seems to be <laughs> what makes me get into things at the moment. Um, I'm teaching Buddhism mm, in the nothing fall. Nothing like having to so stand up in front of people and say stuff. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. So I started translating the Sankhya Karika and thinking a lot about that. Um, you know, and the only verse or the Karika to do with practice is this one on Tattva Abhyasa, right? And it's the practice of the Tattvas. Um, but here it's talking about the 25 Tattvas, and it seems to be this practice of sort of, you know, discernment, discrimination, sort of from the gross to the subtle in this sort of, you know, I am not that, I am not this, um, until you get to the most subtle. And eventually, again, this sort of realization that the Purusha is not even the buddhi and the most subtle aspect of Prakriti. Mm. Um, but there's a lot of debate of, you know, is this actually a practice? You know, how does that practice, how would that practice work? Can you just sort of have this, yeah, kind of subtle, just this sort of thought, thought knowledge practice, um, as opposed mm. to the sort of Yoga Sutra version of that, right, which is Ekatattva Abhyasa, right? So practice on one one tattva here just sort of meaning one 
one principle, one um, mm, thought to be various things. Um, and I don't know. I mean, I think knowledge can be a practice in and of itself. Um, but for me, if I'm reading texts that are actually talking about practice, then I feel like I want to do the practice. If I'm reading about texts that don't necessarily, um, maybe that's that's a different thing. And like I said, I do think that, you know, reading and translating and knowledge is a practice and it can be a very meditative one. Mm. I always thought that maybe the, the real difference or um, uniqueness of Eastern thought to Western thought is that Eastern thought doesn't take the rational, the rational mind prima facie, like inherently as seeing clearly that there's an energy or a light in the body that affects the clarity or the 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 rightness of the thoughts in the mind right so you know then we have in chapter one in the bhagavad gita that you know a reasonable seeming argument from arjuna but you know whilst unconsciously you know revealing himself to be overwrought with emotion and uh, and full of uh, biases that he's unaware of in terms of attachment to the family on the other side uh, you know, there's a energy in the body which is uh, which is affecting his rationale, although the argument appears rational. So it seems to me like a, a you know a, a reasonable dismissal of all, all of Western rationalism in you know in the first chapter of the Bhagavad Gita. Really, that you need some kind of practice to clarify the energy of the body, which is shining the light in the mind. Because you know, like anything can seem rational. It can seem rational to one person to eat meat. It can seem completely irrational to another person to eat meat. So <laughs> rationality itself is slightly flawed. Or or at least we might say influenced by the physical body. So I think that's, you know, why I got into to the yoga in the first place, just realizing that, you know, because I studied philosophy, right? As um, an undergraduate and a postgraduate, that, you know, mm -hmm. the, the mind isn't inherently a clear seeing tool, that there's something in the body that affects the mind. So my feeling is potentially that, you you know, the two, the, 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 the genius of the Eastern idea is that the two kind of go together and it's making a harmony between the two that, that is actually the, uh, the practice of yoga in the first place. You can't do one without the other. Well, I don't, I'm not sure they're ever meant mm -hmm. to be one without the other. I mean, you look at the, look at yoga sutras, you know, and even in, in, you know, chapter two, the practice chapter starts off with Kriya yoga, you know, some kind of tapas, some kind of discipline. You know? And I think, I mean, certainly, I I obviously agree, at least personally, that, you know, um, it, I mean, that's, that's why to. I love it. And that's why I do it. And, there, you know, it is this, this integration between body and mind and that sort of, yeah, the balance between the two. And, um, but I think, you know, the, the texts that, I mean, the texts that I, wrote my dissertation on uh, the Aparikshanabhuti, which is an Advaita text, you know, it sort of begrudgingly allows practices and it kind of redefines those practices, basically saying that they're all about realizing Brahman. Um, and, you know, at the very, very end, it even more begrudgingly sort of says, okay, if you really can't figure this out, you can do some Hatha yoga. You know, it's kind of thought of as a last resort to have to use your body for anything other than, you know, a straight posture mm. that you can maintain for three hours so that you actually can meditate, um, which does tend to be the way that it's referred to in the Yoga Sutra, or at least in the Patanjala Yoga Shastra. Um, they are all 
you know, generally seated postures for meditation. Mm. Mm. Um, and mm. so I think, you know. I feel, yeah, I mean, I think it's a confusion of two different traditions of using the body, isn't it? The first one is, you know, a, a, a practice for stability, for the sake of stability, really, or, or at least for the sake of restraint of the body senses so you can see more clearly. And then the other one is a kind of hijacking of the body tantrically that comes along later, which is that there's something in the body which might be stirred up somehow, quite the opposite in some in certain respects, stirred up somehow and reinvigorated to a, to, to one is a kind of, you know, in restraint and the other is actually quite the opposite in, in engagement, exactly. or, you know, in kind of engaging those forces. Um, I suppose... Yeah, what I was thinking of is that I can see kind of two kinds of practice in the Bhagavad Gita, and really one is social practice, which is the main one, right? You know, practice mm -hmm. socially with the body, you know, in terms of action in the body. And the the, the yoga physical seems to just be a, an extra little tool just to keep one's uh, one's oneself strong and and kind of right. uh, committed and you know and, and and you know kind of stable as it were to do the physical, you know, to do the karma yoga really to do. But you're act, right, yeah, the karma yoga life. is actually yeah, physical yeah. that acting acting in life mm, yes yeah, so i would say that as a practice <laughs> yeah 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 just simply cleanse the body of its misperceptions by just acting with with awareness in life yeah no absolutely so it how doesn't does, have to uh, be on a yoga mat uh, to count as physical as, how does your uh, your study of the Vaita come into all this because you mentioned before um we started that uh, patabi joyce was actually an Vaita, which i didn't realize that he was so committed to the Vaita perspective um so how would that might how how might that inform practice let's say that that perspective or that everything I, I mean first of all define to people what advice is exactly in puerto rico we call ourselves boricua we are proud passionate and full of life on our island adventure finds you strangers aren't strangers for long the size of the audience doesn't change the beauty of the music and we celebrate every last ray of sun because i think there's still some some uh you know mistaken views and uh, confusion around around the term advaita and what it means i mean advaita literally just means not two right non-dual Mm. Um, as opposed mm. to Dvaita. And so the yoga of the Yoga Sutra is originally Dvaita, right? The ultimate aim is Kaivalya, the separation of Purusha from Prakriti. So the ultimate aim is two. Mm. Um, whereas in Advaita, the ultimate aim is the realization that the Atman, the individual self, is the same as Brahman, the universal self. And so the ultimate realization is one. Um, and these days we tend to think that's what yoga means. You know, we think, oh, yoga's union, yoga's one. Um, and that's, I think you were saying this before, you know, that's much more appealing. Um, we like the idea of, we like the idea of one, you know. Union we disunion. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And, yeah. you know, we may or may not want to have a God involved to get there. Um, and so, you know, just this sort of abs, this realization that, you know, the microcosm and the macrocosm are the same, the individual and the universal. Um, you know, I think that's very appealing. And that's sort of largely the narrative that's been placed onto yoga. Um, and mm. in a certain sense, that works very well. I mean, that happened, you know, through the through various texts over time. Um, and I'm sure in practice as well. Um, but we sort of have a record of that through 
through the texts. Um, but, you know, duality kind of fits very neatly inside of non-duality. You have duality and then just at the very end, you stick them together, right? The two become one. Um, and it's all very nice. Um, but the way that I first understood it, and yes, Batabi Joyce did grow up um, as an Advaitin. His family guru was Shankaracharya. Um, the first time I went to Mysore, he was building a Shankaracharya temple um, that we all sort of went to. And um, and so that left a huge impression on me. Um, but I think, you know, the way that um, he sort of talked about it was seeing God everywhere, you know, seeing God in the wall and, you know, God meaning the divine, seeing the same essence everywhere. And so, you know, that was very interesting to me when I started reading the Yoga Sutra and yoga philosophy. And it's like, wait a minute, you know, this is interesting. Um, and, you know, that, that little secret mantra that he always did at the end, that's an Advaitin mantra. I mean, that's the Advaitic lineage that he puts in there at the end. So he sort of felt like there was this sort of, you know, it's yoga, but with this little whisper of non-dualism there as at the end or the undertone you don't even know it's there but you know there it is <laughs> um how did you find out what he was saying um it's one of the pranayama mantras so when i started learning pranayama okay. i was right. like wait a minute i know this and then i translated it and you know because that's <laughs> what i do and uh, i was like oh okay <laughs> That's that's this sort of, yeah this kind of this kind of un undertone under the breath thing that we're all kind of yeah doing without knowing that that's what's happening. Yeah, as you say, I mean it's definitely a conversion that's been happening over the last let's say couple of 150 years from Vivekananda really <laughs> coming over you know and and bringing you know ostensibly what was a dualistic philosophy about restraint and then disunion of the body and you know separating from the suffering of life and and suddenly you get something which is kind of much more kind of slightly more positive in in, in humanistic terms at least that you know you can live life and then unite and find a positive experience within the body and within life and and uh, and and find union so suddenly yoga is is very differently phrased you know, it makes a difference in terms of people's perspectives sort of these days. Has anything been lost? Or, or, you know, obviously we could say we may have gained a slightly more positive worldview in terms of this world. But do you think anything has been compromised in terms of the, you know, in terms of the way that it's been taught now in losing its a, a different kind of roots, really? That, you know, I mean, from obviously Patanjali and, you know, and Yoga Sutra or, or uh, Bhagavad Gita. I mean, it's never really talking about a resolution in this world, is it? It's talking about a resolution from escaping the uh, samsara and the, the the cycle of reincarnation yeah i mean the practice has definitely changed i mean it was originally an ascetic tradition and so we're sort mm -hmm. of you know definitely repurposing it for a different audience but that's not something that's happened overnight i mean that's something that's happened gradually over time i mean you see it in the hatha texts just a sort of widening of the audience and you know, I think it's sort of a necessary thing. I mean, these traditions want to survive and they wouldn't have survived if they just sort of, you know, or they, or they would have remained very small and there was definitely competition. Less <laughs> so, appealing to a general audience, let's say, yeah, yeah. Deny the world and just hope for a better rebirth and then escape from the world altogether. Yeah, that's going to appeal to less people, I'm sure. 
Exactly. Yeah. So it seems like something that's happened gradually, this sort of, you know, realization of the need to appeal to, you know, a more householder audience as well. Um, you know, we've, we've taken that quite far, but, you know, and I do think that there can be things, I mean, there, there are things that are, that are lost, but, um, you know, I think when you, when you practice yoga for long enough, no matter where you start or how you start, you do, people generally start to get curious and, you know, you start to realize things that are maybe a bit beyond your body. Um, and so, I mean, I think that's one of the wonderful things about it is there's something inherent in the practice that if you stay with it long enough, it kind of makes you inquire in some way. Hmm. It's just generally the consistency of doing something every day. I reckon I, I often, you know, I like to play devil's advocate really, but I often kind of think you, well, you could probably get the same thing if you just did an hour and a half of piano every day or an hour and a half of swimming or, you know, non-physical or physical in the end, something that takes you out of the immediate goal centered action and throws you back on, okay, I'm here again doing this. What's it all about then? You know, day in, day out. I don't want to, you don't even want to do it anymore. I liked piano at the start. Now I hate it. You know, I'm still doing it. Right. I mean, <laughs> I it, think you, know, you could also get enlightened playing the piano. questions, really. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, just consistent action, just structured, consistent action, which is Dharma, really, right? You do something structured every day, whether you like it or not, you know, whether you feel like it at the moment or not, you know, and it throws the question of self back on, back on you rather than just being completely taken up in, in goal centered action, which, you know, which is which is what happens without a structure or without a practice really it certainly was the case for, for you know for, i'm sure for most of us for me before practice is that like you've got a means to an end and, and you spend all day chasing that tail between you know trying to get through action what, what you fancy right and then suddenly you've got a structure to, <laughs> to life and then it it kind of just makes you more inherently more reflexive because you're not so bound up in trying to kind of consistently kind of get what you want anymore in, in, in a more immediate sense and at least <laughs> Exactly. And I think that's, I mean, I do think you could get that from any number of things if you do that in that kind of disciplined mm. way. It's just that, you know, yoga sort of has this whole philosophy behind it that you can start to inquire into um, and maybe tap into, you know, the parampara of it um, in whatever, you know, not that there's an unbroken lineage, but there's, you know, just the history and, um, Tradition. I mean, to me, you know, it's always mind blowing that to read these texts that are thousands of years old, and to think that people's minds worked very similarly to how ours work now, even though, you know, we have all this technology, we have all this different sort of external stuff happening, and yet our internal workings seem pretty similar. Um, that just, yeah. yeah I, I mean, mean I think the, the, the computer hasn't been fully hacked yet i mean that may be something coming in the future but currently we might hope we've <laughs> roughly got our own computer before elon starts inserting chips in people's heads it's still it's still roughly the same thing going on what what uh, what, what do you think um what, what do you think of the kind of take-home points then that you've learned from studying yoga more academically you mentioned that it's you know you know one could could you know learn or, or experience reality as it is, let's say enlightened, whatever you want to call it, through uh, any practice. But you know, you mentioned the text and the kind of framework, or, or you know, around yoga particularly. 
Uh, now, obviously, it's beneficial contemplating on the meaning of chitter or the meaning of ritti or whatever else, you know, in terms of just, you know, reflection being helpful inherently. But, you know, in terms of the kind of framework of, of thinking around what you've studied more now, I mean, how has that, do you think, influenced, informed the way you practice and the way you kind of relate practice to, to life itself? Do you think there's any specific ways you could say well this is yoga rather than a more universal or generalized sense of well anything could be yoga people say anything that concentrates the mind you know you know but but it's not the case i mean this comes from a particular worldview and a particular tradition right so so what differentiates that from this generalized everything is essentially one and just concentrate the mind you know a kind of more new age kind of perspective on things which we I mean, currently in see practice, in I, you know the thing that differentiates it really is the breath right i mean mm. that's the thing that we really pay attention to um hopefully um that i think is the you know the centerpiece around which practice revolves that maybe other things one might do you know doesn't um or wouldn't um but in terms of i mean i i have this you know wonderful job in this um, great program for anybody who is interested um, in, in such things. Um, it's a yoga studies master's program and everybody in the program is both a scholar and practitioner. And so hmm. I really get to have this, you know, sort of these, I teach these cl wonderful classes, which are just, you know, a joy to teach, especially I taught yoga philosophy in the spring and we went through various texts and, you know, a lot of people at the end said that like, wow, that actually, you know, that it made them sort of question their practice and question a lot of things to have to think about the philosophy. But I think in the end, because you question, you question things, you actually end up with a deeper relationship to it. And so, mm. you know, again, what I like about this program and teaching there is that, it really gives people a sort of opportunity to get to to get to question those things, um, but also to honor their practice and sort of have have both and have the space have the space for both. And um, it's really, yeah, quite. I'm I'm constantly learning. It's uh, <laughs> it's, I couldn't think of a more perfect place <laughs> or way to teach for me. Um. <laughs> and where is this you're doing? It's Maryland, right? Uh, not Maryland. Uh, Loyola Marymount University. Uh, LMU oh, okay, in Mary, Los Angeles. Mary, okay. Marymount. <laughs> okay, right, right. Well, it's better than, probably better than going to Lancaster and doing it, right? Yeah, that sounds all right. Yeah. <laughs> come, over, come over and do it there. It's a bit sunnier, a bit warmer. Yeah. Uh, yes. Although I will say, you know, I'm being from New York, I find in a place like New York, people. I think London too, you know, people love Ashtanga in particular. It's like, you got to, you want to do it every day because this is your, the city living in a big city. It's crazy. And this is sort of your calm, peaceful place. Um, living in a place where it's kind of always sunny and peaceful. People, I think, feel less of the need to practice every day. And maybe instead they go for a walk hmm. or, you know, I lived and taught in Northern California like 20 years ago. And um, I was just always amazed. We were like, no, nah, I'm going to go for a walk today. Like, oh. Yeah. Because <laughs> that doesn't happen in New York. <laughs> Actually, I was, I was, 
I was teaching in Vancouver for a couple of years, actually. And it was a, as soon as the summer, the spring or the summer comes around, it's They're like, gone. you know, half the week people come. It's like, well, I do it a couple, I'll tell it a couple of times a week now, but, but then I want to do hiking on the other days and rock climbing and all exactly. the other things. It's like, and then I'll do yoga a couple of days a week. It's like, well. In Vancouver, you at anymore, least you get most of the saying. year though, because yeah. it's pretty rainy for a long time. Yeah, it rains. Well, the winter rains a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You do get you do get them a lot of the year, but as soon as the summer comes around, you lose them. Yeah, yeah. But London doesn't happen because it just rains in the summer as well. So you're right there. Yeah, yeah. So exactly. Where, you know, just to, just to wrap things up, where do you see yourself? Uh, you know, what's what's your next plan? What are you, what are you working on now? And and um, you know, what, what are your aims for the future? Uh, what do you envisage uh, going going and forth and doing next with with this? Um, I have a few fun projects. I'm the one of Sanskrit mm-hmm. words that I was talking about earlier, but I'm also I'm working on turning my dissertation into a book. So hopefully um, that will happen with in I'm in process <laughs> the next year so that people can read it. It's a very strange thing to work on something for six years and have had like three or four people. <laughs> people have read it so i'm excited to give birth to that into the world um i'm also i'm writing an encyclopedia article on yoga which is kind of a broad topic and um writing writing a few other articles um i guess i and i i do still teach um my sir when i when i go to new york a few times a year and i just taught a retreat in mallorca i'm teaching one in portugal next year and you know maybe maybe some other things um but i guess for me it's it's just sort of figuring out where that balance lies i mean i know Mm. you know i love to teach and i love to teach yoga and i love to teach sanskrit i don't particularly love getting up at three thirty in the morning anymore, so that's that's part of it. Um, but just trying to it's kind not of plan to go to Mysore <laughs> itself um, um, anytime soon. You know, I sort of feel like my my cup is pretty full in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, I went so much when's when you, I was when's younger. When's your last go? It's yeah. been a while. Um, it's been yeah, like yeah, yeah. five or six years, I think. But I, you oh, know, the thing about long. starting when you're 18 is that everything yeah. back then was really easy. And now it's much harder. So I feel like I now have plenty to work on because, you know, it's never going to be as easy as it was back then. And I'm just generally, I'm sort of, I'm grateful to get on my mat. I feel like I'm. I like having more time to practice here and sort of feeling like my practice is kind of more in service of the rest of my life and me and, you know, not having to jump up. I mean, I miss my shala. I miss teaching, but I, I don't miss having to jump up immediately and teach. I kind of like letting my practice Mm. be for other things. And, um, Mm. Mm. So yeah, I'm still sort of trying to, I'm relatively new to the academic world, so I'm still just trying to figure out I guess my my balance of those things and kind of how to how to keep a foot in in both worlds. All right, let's ask you the the normal questions that I finish on. Um can you give me a guilty pleasure and an inspiration? I I've done these for years, so I'll keep them on. I think they're quite funny still. As long as it's not chocolate. Any guilty pleasure? Um what? Guilty pleasure. Um, probably my morning chai. That's kind of my favorite thing. Oh, I get it that I guilty, make chai it? and I, it's not that guilty. <laughs> but I, 
was it was it Krishna Das's um, guilty pleasure? Something like watching watching documentaries on serial killers. I think that was quite a good one. Oh, bizarre! On Krishna um, Das, you got <laughs> yeah, kind of bizarre, isn't it? You got anything that will beat that? I thought that was probably one of the strangest ones. Chai seems no. quite lame after that. Anything seems it does lame seem after quite that one. lame. What about in, um, yeah, I like, yeah, maybe put a little bit of jaggery in it or something. Um, what, <laughs> I do what like about, sugar. <laughs> what about uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. What, was, what, sugar? Oh. Um, what about an inspiration? Like something that inspires you your place? Um, not sandwich. right. Okay, you're never gonna get. You're never gonna get there. Just let's just forget it. Right. Yeah, you're never gonna get to that. Yeah, yeah. No, he's um, not dead. That's in a guilty pleasure. <laughs> You've got a strange idea of guilt. Sorry. I know. I've um, been doing yoga since I was 15. Yeah, exactly. See, exactly. <laughs> it's still been wiped out, hasn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Inspirational. Inspirational what? Just inspiration. Any inspiration, a person, a place, or a text, or anything that keeps inspiring you, you know? Um, or, or has inspired just... you. Um, at the moment, I was just revisiting an Emily Dickinson poem that I really love. Oh, I like a bit of Emily um, Dickinson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This world is not conclusion. Poetry and, you know, Walt Whitman. And just, yeah, I've always loved, I've loved reading poetry and words and kind of how I, mm. I still like English words. My grandfather was an English professor at Cornell, and so I, I grew up, grew up hmm. with a lot of words. Um, mm. And that's so. a good recommendation. I mean, Emily Dickinson is a good way into poetry because you, you know, if anyone's listening that's you know, interested in poetry, she really she's very philosophical, but she breaks down to very small chunks without any punctuation or uh, it's just dashes generally. Exactly. Um, and it's very economical, and it's a very easy way into poetry that's very touching and, and very profound actually. Um, so yeah, and Sanskrit has Emily no, Dickinson. Um, and you know, Sanskrit doesn't really have punctuation, and so I'm always I'm mm. always interested in poetry and. How I mean, I feel like that it feeds my own translation to read good writing and particularly poetry because, you know, so many of these texts were written in verse. And so I like to see that play. Um, hmm. Yeah. Very um, nice. What, what about my favorite? Um, four Quartets, T.S. Eliot. Yeah, yeah, I love yeah. that. Yeah. Oh, no, and, yeah, yeah. And Always he, come back to that. He had some Sanskrit yeah. inspiration too. So he did, yeah, yeah, yeah. Certainly, the wasteland. Um, well, um, we could go on, uh, but I'm gonna leave you there and let you go to bed. It's uh, <laughs> it's coming up to late it's in Los Angeles, time. early in uh, where am I now? In these days, Thailand. Um, and uh, yeah, it's been a pleasure to talk to you, Zoe, and uh, really appreciate that. We'll put the uh, the link to your uh, your uh, online course for anyone that wants to find out more about it in the uh, in the notes below and uh yeah thanks for coming on it's been a really really thanks nice chat me. so thanks for taking the time thank you